we literally, in my estimation, wrote the voter ranks out with our blood and with our feet. Uh, the movement instilled in me that sense of hope, that sense of faith, that sense of optimism. It, it doesn't matter really uh, how many bombings, how many beatings, uh, how many jailing. And I did go to jail during that period of uh, 40 times. But you, you had to have that sense of faith, that sense of hope that you could overcome. You could make this society something different, something better. That was Congressman John Lewis, the civil rights hero and voting rights champion who passed away on Friday, July 17th. This next clip is Reverend C.T. Vivian, who the New York Times described as a field general for the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Reverend Vivian also passed away on July 17th. I mean, you know what you're there for. You know what you're doing. You know the cost on both sides. You know the cost if you don't. If somebody doesn't, right? You know that all your life you've been waiting to get rid of racism. And you know until you can break it in the South, it's not going to be broken. And so let's get it on. Welcome to the Passing the Baton episode of Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips. My co-host, Charlene Chang, is off on a hard-earned and well-deserved vacation. In the outpouring of grief after Congressman Lewis's death, a lot of people talked about the need to take the baton and carry it forward. I'm honored to be joined today by two leaders who in all aspects are taking the baton of civil rights, social justice, and racial justice. They're both doing incredible and inspiring work in multiple areas, and their leadership is garnering significant media attention nationally. And there's an HBO original documentary that debuts this coming Tuesday, July 28th, called Stockton on My Mind. Here's how HBO describes the documentary. At age 26, on the same day Donald Trump was elected in 2016, Michael Tubbs became the first African-American mayor of his beleaguered hometown of Stockton, California, as well as the youngest mayor of a major American city. Stockton on My Mind from filmmaker Mark Levin follows Tubbs's personal and political journey, exploring how growing up amid poverty and violence shaped his vision for innovative change. Tubbs is launching some of the boldest social and economic policy experiments in the country in an effort to lift up his city of 300,000 residents and turn it into a kind of social policy incubator. So that's the HBO description. I am blessed today to be joined not only by Mayor Michael Tubbs, but also by Anna Entiasari, who has been described as a world traveler, a dedicated scholar with a collection of degrees from prestigious universities, and a prominent voice for social justice. Anna already has degrees from Stanford and Cambridge, and is currently getting her PhD from Cambridge University. She's the author of the forthcoming book, The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation, which is set to be released in February by Flatiron Books. Anna became the first partner of the city of Stockton in 2016, when she was just 24 years old, and Michael was just 26. I have known both of them for nearly a decade now, and it has been a true joy and inspiration to watch them grow and develop and take the reins of leadership in this country. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. We're excited to be here. Thank you for those kind introductions, Steve. You know, over a decade, oh my gosh. Oh, I know. I can do it myself when <laughs> I start doing the math. You're not tired of us yet. <laughs> so I'd actually like to start by talking about and honoring 
those who came before us and who carried the baton for the decades, right? So, Michael, you posted on Facebook about the time that you met John Lewis and what he said to you and how that impacted you. Can you, can you share that story? Yeah, I've been blessed to meet John Lewis a couple of times. So the first time I met him was in 2010, when I was one of 40 students selected to do a reenactment of the Freedom Riders with some of the original Freedom Riders. Mm-hmm. We met him briefly um, in D.C. And then the second time was when I sent him an email with the picture we took from that day mm-hmm. and said I was leading a trip of Stanford students on a spring break focused on civil rights and would he find time to meet with us? Mm. Although we worked from his district and the congressman staff was very generous with his time. He called us in for a meeting for an hour, not 15 minutes out of follow up, but an hour where he sat with no phone, his office mm. had no clock and he just talked with us and looked each of us in their eyes. And I tell people all the time, I've never met anyone um, as present as, as, as Congressman Lewis was. He made us all feel like we were the civil rights hero and he was a student that was learning. And then before we left, he asked me what was I doing or thinking about doing after I graduated. I told him, well, I'm actually in the midst of running for city council in my hometown. And he looked at me and he said, you have to run. You have to make a change. You have to always be in the way, get in the way, make good trouble. And I think those words particularly get in the way and make good trouble have been good sort of North stars in terms of being elected officials. I think oftentimes, there's so much pressure to not make waves, right. to not get in the way, to allow the status quo to be the status quo, and just to hear from someone I admire so much that know, get in the way, make good trouble, make people uncomfortable when necessary, um, are, are still words I try to live by. Yeah, I also wanna I also wanna acknowledge in this moment, right, the life and legacy of two other civil rights leaders who recently left us. So in March, and I had forgotten it was as, as recent as March. Reverend Joseph Lowry died at the age of ninety eight. Reverend Lowry co-founded the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the organization that was Dr. King's organizational base. And as I mentioned in the opening, Reverend C.T. Vivian passed the same day as, as, as John Lewis. And then in terms of the arc of this, right, I took a delegation of Stanford students to the South in the late 80s, and we met with C.T. Vivian. Hmm. And I, I distinctly recall just the presence of somebody who had been there at these cutting edge moments, who had faced what they had faced, showed us that respect and was so inspiring to encourage us, you know, to go on and carry, carry on. And so I really, I really took that away. And I also think it's noteworthy, and I want to make this point that all these leaders are from Georgia, you know, and uh, I talk about the importance of Georgia and what people like Stacey Abrams are trying to do. It's not an accident. People talk about Atlanta as the cradle of the civil rights movement. And it really has been the epicenter of the struggle in a lot of ways. And the political work that's happening today really ties back to that trajectory, including with the selection of Nakima Williams, right, to replace John Lewis, right, the Georgia Democratic uh, Party chair, state senator. She was on the podcast um, back in April 29th. And people should check that out to learn about her. So just to... To, I think for our listeners to kind of frame up and tie these pieces together, how the modern day fights for political power are, are rooted in the civil rights movement. I want to play this clip of President Obama speaking on the 50th anniversary of the Bloody Sunday Selma to Montgomery March, speaking at the base of the bridge where John Lewis and others had been attacked. And because of men and women like John Lewis, Joseph Lowry, Hosea Williams, Amelia Bunton, Diane Nash, Ralph Abernathy, C.T. Vivian, Andrew Young, Fred Shuttlesworth, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Because of what they did, the doors of opportunity swung open not just for black folks, but for every American. 
Women marched through those doors. Latinos marched through those doors. Asian Americans, gay Americans, Americans with disabilities, they all came through those doors. And there's actually amazing footage from that day when Obama gave that speech of the presidential motorcade driving over that bridge, this time with a black man in a limousine as president of the United States. So, Anna, I want to ask you about your work because you're focused on the role of women in general and the mothers in particular, mm-hmm. right? And that usually the role of women in the movement is overlooked and underappreciated. And I don't know if you, know, you guys know this woman, uh, Rose Sanders was, uh, it, was it is, a uh, you know, civil rights activist from Alabama, done a lot of work in Selma. We brought her to Stanford in the late 80s. We never forget her speaking. We're crazy auditorium. She says, you didn't get into Stanford just because you're smart. So if it were just about intelligence, my mama would have gotten in here a long time ago. Right? <laughs> and that really resonated with me. Right? I, mean, I, I mean, I've had Barack Obama in my house. I've worked with Fortune 500 CEOs. I've met Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. And none of them were as courageous, creative, tenacious, or imaginative as my mother. So, Anna, can you tell us what your book is focused on and why you decided to have that focus. Absolutely. So the book, as you described in the introduction, is about the mothers of MLK Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin. And it's all about telling the story of not the women behind the man, which that saying I absolutely hate, Mm. or the women beside the men, but the women before the men, and the stories that have been erased throughout history and stories that that have been largely ignored. And it's interesting that this happened because all three of the sons really credited their mothers for their success, for um, the lessons that they taught them, for their courage, for their bravery. But in history, scholars just started erasing those parts of the story and so often would write about their fathers if they did mention the parents, but really left the mothers out of it. And so this book is correcting that problem and giving the mothers the credit and attention that they deserve. And even thinking about Atlanta, as you were speaking about earlier, um, Alberta King, who is MLK Jr.'s mother, uh, was born in Atlanta. She lives there and in her childhood experiences the Atlanta race riots. Her parents are the ones who have built up Ebenezer Baptist Church as this hub of the Burgoyning civil rights movement that's coming. And so without her and without her family, Reverend Martin Luther King Sr. would not end up being who he ends up being because she's the one who tutors him through his education at Morehouse. And she's the one who says, in order for us to continue to make this progress, we all need to move forward with our education. And so she makes sure that this happens not only for her children, but also for her husband. And so it's a tragedy throughout history that we go back and tell the story as if Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., who of course is incredible, but as if he's the one that guides this family forward when it's MLK Jr.'s maternal lineage that allows this revolution to happen. And one of the main reasons that Atlanta becomes this hub is because of Stone Mountain and the KKK resurrecting there about a mile or two away from Ebenezer Baptist Church. And all of this is happening when Alberta King, again, MLK Jr.'s mother, is a child through her teenage years. So was it, it's interesting because I, I you know, did some, this civil rights type research also when I, was a, when I was a student. So I'm interested, how hard was it to get the 
information, like in terms of doing the research and finding out about the lives of these mothers? Incredibly difficult um, for several reasons. One, because the families of these incredible women have been so hurt by researchers and writers mm. in the past. Um, they've spent their lives trying to correct the record on their fathers, their uncles, whoever these men were to them. And so for a researcher to approach them and say, I now want to write about a woman who for them is the center of their lives and the center of their families, they felt much more the need to protect them from me <laughs> rather than share their stories. They wanted to honor them, of course, but they couldn't, they don't know who they can and cannot trust. And so in acknowledging that, I had to set out on finding everything that already existed on the women in all of the margins in which they existed and bring them into the center. So I spent a lot of hours reading through books about the sons. The sons were kind of my entry point and then bringing any reference of the mothers um, to the center of the story. And I kind of had to go and take it away from technology, just put poster boards on our walls, and Michael remembers this, and just put post-its with facts that I could find in all these disparate <laughs> places and kind of build the timeline. But then from there, writing any kind of history, as you know, is really difficult because you're filtering through memories, you're filtering through the politics of it all, the ways in which we've told the stories of the women, mostly through men's eyes. The books that have been written about the sons are written by men primarily. And so that's why we lose reference of the mothers or we are presented examples of them that are completely out of context. And this has happened with Louise Little, Malcolm X's mother, who has been a footnote and been called crazy. Mm. And that's all that people hear from her when instead she was a radical Marcus Garvey follower who in her opinion was put away for 25 years against her will because she was standing up for her rights. Wow. So when is the book coming out? February. And so you write faster than your husband, right? Who I hear is also working <laughs> on a book. Yes. I am knee deep in edits um, mm -hmm. for everyone's information. I'm proud of the work I put in. <laughs> <laughs> we yes. are all proud of the work he has put in. Yes. And I, I'm, I'm sure the publisher will be proud once the work is done. <laughs> right. So I want to turn attention to the, what's happening in Stockton, right? So you all have the baton now. I just remember Jan Barker Alexander, the Stanford administrator, told me in 2011, she's like, you got to meet this guy, Michael Tubbs. He's the truth. And having gone to Stanford, having interacted with these people, my first thought was like, I know these Stanford Negroes. So, <laughs> but, but then I actually, I don't know if it was a video, but certainly I read this speech that Michael had given and his opening uh, words are, first time I met my father, he was in chains. I'm talking about his father being incarcerated. And I was all like, oh, this, this is different than most of these Stanford folks. And so you guys have been in, been there. It was 20, you were 22, Michael, when you were elected? I mean, one, so, I was in the primary. I was between two when I started on city council. I think one of the things we've gotten a lot of the most attention is the work on universal basic income. I think it actually, conceptually, it was significant, but it really seems even more significant in the context of this profound economic dislocation we're facing now. There may be entire industries where people are going to be dislocated. So can you describe what the UBI work is? And actually, how did you come to focus on it in the first place? Yeah, this is turning into like a, a Stanford infomercial, but um, <laughs> my freshman year at Stanford, I took a class um, from Professor Carson mm -hmm. about um, the modern African-American freedom struggle. And Professor Carson is like the nation's foremost expert on Dr. King. 
Right, he's the editor of the Martin Luther King Papers Project. So, and because of that class, I became interested in learning more about King's philosophy, particularly the parts I did not learn in church. Mm -hmm. Um, So I remember checking out, where do we go from here, Chaos Our Community? And reading it at 18, 19 years old and discovering that Dr. King was calling for a guaranteed income as a way to answer a lot of the questions, a lot of the things that they were protesting for 50 years ago. And I remember reading that and saying, oh, this is really interesting. It would be cool one day to be part of that conversation. Like, is this where we, is this where do we go? And then when I became mayor, it became readily apparent that a lot of issues in Stockton at the core were issues of poverty and economic insecurity. And that we need to have an agenda, a policy, a program, or pilot, something that talks to that in addition to all the other stuff we're doing around housing and education and homelessness and violent crime. Um, so I have my staff research, they came out with this idea, called, they came back with basic income, giving people money. Mm-hmm. I remember saying like, oh, I remember reading this in Dr. King, but I just got elected mayor. It's my first election as mayor. I don't want it to be the last, so maybe we'll work <laughs> on the term too. But then serendipitously, a week later, I ended up being in a conference with Natalie Foster from the Economic Security Project. And she mentioned they're looking for a, a city to pilot basic income in. I told her I've been studying basic income. I had a task force in the city working on it. So essentially what it is, is that for the past 18 months, we've given 125 residents who are representative of the city as a whole in terms of race, in terms of income. So some make above 45K, some make below. Um, but they're all given $500 a month, no strings attached to really answer a couple fundamental questions. One, how do people spend money? Two, um, how does impact income volatility? And three, what impacts would the guaranteed income have on health? So I know a lot of people on your podcast are really nerds. So they can go to stockedindemonstration.org to look at the data dashboard and everything. But essentially what we found is that giving something as small as $500 hasn't made Stockton not America. It hasn't changed the character of the city of Stockton. It hasn't made us some unrecognizable country um, separate mm-hmm. from the United States. But it actually has made us a better community, a more resilient community, and a community that's able to see, as a lot of the work on has done to see, to illustrate this intersection of gender and class and how particularly in Stockton with so many women of color, so many single parents, that economic insecurity and low wages was having impact on families and children. And and the guaranteed income was a way to provide those women with the income floor um, to make decisions around going to work or childcare, et cetera. So that's kind of the basic income. Um, In a nutshell, we started, we talked about this in October, 2017. We did a year of research and design and we piloted February, 2019. Um, And we're extending to January, 2021. Yeah, one of the things that I'm so supportive of the concept because it's so diametrically opposite of how people think about poor people, right? And we, we did a previous podcast episode on unemployment and really talked about, you know, there's so much basically uh, contempt for people who are poor, distrust, believe that they're going to like try to, you know, steal or not work or whatnot. And the whole underlying premise of UBI is that you are actually going to trust people. And so can you say a little bit more about what you've found about how people have actually used the money that you guys have been providing in the the pilot so far? Yeah, Yeah. So what we found is that folks, when given opportunity, make rational decisions. So a lot of money has been spent on food. Um, Before COVID, about 35% was spent on food. But during COVID, that number went up to 45% Hmm. in terms of people hunkering down and making sure their shelter in place. Um, Next was utilities. Um, So paying bills, light, water, et cetera, car. Um, And then then finally, there's anecdotal stories of people who have been able to, to, one lady said she's able to smile for the first time. And I thought she was just happy she got the money. But then she Mm -hmm. said no because I was able to buy dentures 
Wow. And I hadn't smiled for two years because I couldn't afford dentures, but now wow. I can. Wow. Or parents that talk about how they're able to pay for camps for their kids to go to or tutoring for their kids to go to. Or one gentleman, Tomas, who talks about how the $500 was enough for him to interview for a job because he worked an hourly job with no paid time off. So to even try to interview for a better opportunity would require economic risk for him. And he just was unable to take it because his, his finances were real paycheck to paycheck. But the five hundred dollars gave him a cushion, so he was able to interview and actually get put on on a union job with more stable hours, more time with his kids, etc. And the last thing I'll say is I appreciate you lifting up sort of this idea of trust because I found aside from how people are spending money, the real root of the issue are these caricatures we have of people and who people are. So I think right. what we've learned from this pilot is that the government does trust some people. Right. And you see it in our, every time there's a bailout, the mm-hmm. rich folks and corporations get billions and billions and billions and billions of taxpayer dollars because we trust them to make the right decision. Right. Um, and also this idea of dignity being attached to work and really mm-hmm. understanding that part of the issue we have in our very brutal economy is that we attach dignity to production when dignity should be attached to humanity. And if that was the case, then people would be able to work and conditions are more dignified, like with stable hours, with fair wages, with paid time off, et cetera. Yeah, I was listening to this other podcast, somebody was talking about, what if we looked at social security, not as something that starts at retirement, but starts at birth. And it really is a way to provide a floor for people to actually you know, manifest their, their, their full potential. So you're taking this idea now national, right? You've, got a, you've had a recent announcement with different mayors around the country. So what's, what's going on with that? Yeah, so the intention in Stockton was always to pilot, but no city can do a basic income. That has to be a federal program. So I, I think just for the past couple of years, a lot of mayors have been reaching out, wanting technical assistance, wanting to do their own pilots. Um, so this is always something I wanted to do, but then the George Floyd civil unrest really put into focus um, the need to, to, to really accelerate those efforts, particularly when realizing that When Do We Go From Here was written in 1967 during another time of civil unrest where the mm. state was on fire and people were protesting and Dr. King looked out saw that and said, we need a guaranteed income. Mm. So it's kind of in that vein, I started a group called the Mayors for Guaranteed Income, which is right now a network of 17 mayors throughout this country who are dedicated to A, piloting a guaranteed income in their cities, B, advocating for a guaranteed income for our constituents during COVID, but C, to, to lift up the stories of our constituents and, and, and do work against those tropes around why people are economically insecure, who poor people are, and because we know a lot of it is rooted in notions of anti-blackness. A lot of it is rooted in, in the same notions and ideologies that gave rise to, to the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and countless others. Yeah. Um, so I'm proud to be with mayors throughout this country saying, no, as we look forward and create a new normal, we have to update the 1935 social safety net. And the 2020 version has to include what we have currently, but also a guaranteed income. And you've been able to put together some interesting partners in this work. Yeah, so we have Jack Dorsey from Twitter, who just recently gave $3 million to do some planning work in the cities and to just fund the network. We have Chris Hughes, an economic security project. We have the, the 17 mayors and just broad swath of, of supportive people who are just looking at kind of where we are now and acts like Dr. King, where do we go from here? <laughs> Chaos or community? And a guarantee income being not a panacea, but a tool to get us closer to notions of this beloved community that Dr. King died for, that John Lewis lived his life um, trying to build. 
And so, Anna, what's been your focus and your work as the first partner of Stockton? I know you did this report on the status of women in Stockton. Can you tell yeah. how, how that came together? Definitely. So I'm all about telling stories that otherwise would be hidden or forgotten or erased. And it just so happens that those are usually women's stories. So I will say, even as Michael mentioned, Claiborne Carson, Professor Claiborne Carson, we have to remember that those papers were saved and then passed on by Coretta Scott King. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the one who decided who would have access to her husband's papers. So just to make sure even in our telling of history that we don't um, erase more names. But when it comes to the report on the status of women, when Michael was running for office, not the first time, but the second time, and we've been together obviously since I was 19 and he was 21, so both campaigns together (laughs) and now our third, I realized that nobody was talking about women. Even when there was a women's forum at the debate, nobody asked the candidates what they were going to do for women. Mm -hmm. So I had recently finished my master's in gender studies, so it was definitely at the forefront of my mind even more than it usually is. And I said to Michael, what are you going to do for women? We have plenty of people in history who have been lauded and have been heroes for us, but who have completely missed the mark, especially when it comes to supporting women of color. And as we're seeing during COVID, women are more than the backbone of our communities. They are our essential workers. They are our health experts. They are our teachers and they are our mothers. And if we're not supporting them, then we're just going to completely be unable to address the needs of the entire community. So I often say, when you focus on women's issues, then you're focusing on community issues. And if you're not, you're not going to fix anything. Mm-hmm. And so to his credit, he said, okay, you know more about this than I do. What do we do? How do we start this? And I, again, talking about Stanford, we're all nerds here. Um, it starts with data and it starts with research. And unfortunately, especially when it comes to women's testimonies and what we feel needs to happen, we have an accurate read on that, but we're not believed until there's numbers behind it. And so we set out to put a report together on the status of women in Stockton to see how we were doing compared to women in the county, compared to women um, in the state and women in the country. And on some key indicators, it was pretty clear that we needed to pay more attention and support women in our city. And so when it comes to domestic violence, there were high, high numbers here in Stockton, something that we're starting to address a little bit more Um, When it comes to access to reproductive health, it wasn't as well distributed amongst different groups as it should be. When it comes to education levels, um, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but it was extremely low. And then there was no access to affordable childcare, which is another thing that we're working on, not only in Stockton, but something that nationally we're trying to find solutions for as well, so that more women can go back to work if they want to or women can finish their degrees if they want to. But then when we go back to talk about basic income, if we're not supporting women from the beginning of their own lives, but also their children's lives, then there's so much that can go just downhill from there. So if we think about that $500, it's not a coincidence that so many of the recipients are women. And they're making these decisions not only for themselves, but for their families and what will be best for themselves and their children. Yeah, I thought that you were talking, I thought, well, I had two questions. One was, um, are there other, have other cities or entities done this kind of report on the status of women specifically? Yeah, um, there were a few examples, not many. I would definitely like to see more cities do it because I think it has, even if, so a lot of people ask us, what are the direct things that have come from that report? And the thing with gender is that it plays a part in every single thing we do. So (laughs) 
everything that's come <laughs> after that report, that report has helped to influence in some way or another because we're paying more attention now to gender. So you're not going to necessarily see a very direct yet this has to do with, you know, gender equity, even though we are working on those things and Michael and his team are doing a fantastic job with that. But it's something to, to just remember that gender is a part of every single decision. And we're just having that at the forefront of our minds now, which is super important. But Los Angeles had put together a report on the status of their women. And that helped us to think about just the fact that it was a good idea. Because unfortunately, so often when we try to focus on women, when you say, let's put the microscope here, let's pay attention to women's issues, it's really controversial. Or people are just like, that's not important. Mm -hmm. So it's one or the other. Um, and so you have to make such a case and so much effort is taken from those of us who care about gender equity to just explain why the work needs to happen. So I was grateful that Los Angeles had produced this report because I could show that it was an example of another city that we all saw as an important and major city and why we should kind of follow in their footsteps. Yeah, well, that raises another question, and it's um, in terms of like the role where they kind of you guys take as, as as partners to this leadership, right? There's a um, Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown, right? He's he's married to Connie Schultz, who's a you know Pulitzer Prize winning, I believe, you know, columnist, renowned journalist in her own right. But whenever she would go around, she'd get introduced, you know, as Sherrod's wife, and so she actually wrote a book called and his lovely wife, Connie, right? So I'm curious, because I know that there, you know, there's, there's obviously national organizations of mayors, there's national organization of black mayors, but as a partner of a mayor, is there any kind of networking, formal or informal, that goes on among people in your position? That's a great question. I don't think so. And I'm glad that you mentioned that book because it's a future book I want to write which is, I've already titled it, called Plus One, because whenever I go to these events with Michael, everyone just seems so confused as to what they could maybe talk to me about. Mm -hmm. And there's just a lot of assumptions made, especially with my identity as a partner of a political person since I was 19 years old. So there's the age there, that I'm a woman of color, I have a higher voice, people might perceive me as attractive. So there's all of these things working against the fact that people could think that I have things to say or that I'm passionate about things. Um, I've been called a trophy wife. All of these just insults that just happen. And I, mm -hmm. at times they feel like they're intentional and other times I'm like, people are just generally confused as to how to treat women with respect. Mm -hmm. So it would be nice if there were more of this network because I am, I am sure that so many partners um, feel similarly and women generally, whether or not you're the partner of somebody that others deem as important we're just treated as less than constantly. And so mm -hmm. I'm excited to, to put the book out and have more of these conversations around recognizing women and not erasing our stories and the crime that it is not only for us and those of us who feel like we're not being recognized, but for all of us when we're not telling accurate portrayals of what has happened. Right. Well, you, you, you'll appreciate this story that when I was the chair of the Statewide Black Student Alliance back in the late 80s, we did an event and we had Maxine Waters as our keynote speaker. And so then she arrives, she arrives with her husband. And then I said to him, oh, right this way, Mr. Waters. His name is not Waters, right? She kept her own name, but he was so like not happy <laughs> that I was like assuming that. <laughs> um, so you guys mentioned, uh, you know, you referred to the situation going on with COVID. So, you know, Michael, can you tell us how you guys have responded in Stockton and, and how has it gone so far? Yeah, COVID has really put into kind of focus 
what what our adage in terms of being good neighbors. So as soon as the virus hit, we organized ourselves to create StocktonStrong.org, which was like a central clearinghouse page of just accurate information that mm-hmm. folks can access for programs, for resources, for updates, for community, for volunteer opportunities. And then we started a program called Nourish Stockton before the state's Great Plate program, where we just connected with some folks at DoorDash and connected with Alice Waters and made sure that we were delivering fresh produce to seniors and to folks who lived in food deserts. And had that also and then I raised $3 million just to have an emergency response fund to give to our community-based organizations. Um, on the city organization side, we have some surplus money in our budget, so we dedicate that to COVID relief to set up porta parties and hand-washing stations to create small business relief in the forms of grants and not loans um, to buy PPE, et cetera. And then spend a lot of time with my fellow mayors, particularly Mayor Schaff in Oakland, Mayor Garcia in Long Beach to lobby the governor for direct funds to cities to deal with COVID. So because of that effort, Stockton was able to get $27 million that we just allocated to support small businesses, to support individuals with income relief, to provide more rental assistance, mortgage assistance, PPE, nonprofit support, et cetera. And then just doing my best to help message to the community the importance of like wearing mass social distancing, but also mm-hmm. using this moment to illustrate how things are intersectional, to illustrate how the $10 million grant we received for transforming climate communities is a COVID response as well, because we realize that Blacks and Latinos are more likely to die from COVID, not because their genes are weaker, but because they live in weaker environments and environments with a lot of toxins in the air, where there's, where there's high rates of asthma or lack of access to fresh produce, safe places to walk to their high rates of diabetes. So it's been great to use COVID to kind of connect dots for people in a different way and to show how all the work we're doing is about building a strong community. And it's really about just community wellness and, and public health. And how has it been in terms of flattening the curve and all that? How's that been going in, in Stockton and San Joaquin County? I think the issue is that I, I, I'm not, I don't have the same powers that London has. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mayor Breed, excuse me, in terms of having the city and county government be one, which makes a lot of sense in public health emergencies. Mm-hmm. I'm doing everything I can for my little perch, but the public health officer, the federal CARES Act dollars, and public health authority goes to the county government. So I've been trying my best to work with them. A lot of them are a lot more conservative than me, watch Fox News, and don't read, frankly. So it's been really hard to have conversations. So for example, when I went to do a mask ordinance, I had the lady in charge of emergency response for the county send an email from her county email saying, stay in your lane, how dare you? Uh, we don't need masks. The, the science is unhealthy for people to wear masks. And her job is to procure masks for the county. Wow. I had my entire council voted down the mask ordinance. I put on the, the agenda to, to, to flatten the curve. And we have so many essential workers, particularly our Latino community, who are out in the fields, who are mm-hmm. out in grocery stores, who are out working everywhere and are being exposed. And, and so I've been working super hard. I was able to work with the governor's office to bring the first free testing. Um, to Sawakin County in Stockton mm-hmm. um, because up until April, there was no way for people to get tests unless your doctor prescribed you a test. Think how ridiculous that sounds. Yeah. Um, and so uphill battle, I know it sounds like I'm complaining. I'm just very frustrated because my right. deserves so much better. Well, um, so yeah. We're working on a public health campaign. We're going to roll out an app to help with contact tracing. 
Um, and we're going to do our best to continue to go back to fighting the curve. And I'm also just being more vocal and holding everyone accountable for doing their jobs because, again, it's a matter of life and death, particularly because in Stockton we have two of the census tracts with the highest rates of asthma and diabetes in the state. Wow. Well, it, it, at least you're not being sued by your governor for trying to protect your people like it's happening in Georgia, right? So. I can't believe Governor Kemp and, and, and Mayor Lance Baum's doing an amazing job and dealing yeah. with all this while having COVID. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I want to turn a second to more of the most significant things you've done there in Stockton that gets too little attention. So you can just briefly describe the Stockton Scholars work and what that is. Thank you. No one ever wants to talk about the other stuff, which is just as, which is good. So Stockton Scholars is our initiative to triple the number of Stockton students who graduate college and career ready um, in the next decade. And for context of the top 100 metro areas, Stockton is number 99 in terms of adults with a four-year degree or higher, with wow. only 17%. Wow. And as Anna mentioned earlier, for Latino women, Latino women in our community are one of the largest groups because our community is heavily Latino, but they're also one of the least educated. I think the number was 11% of um, Latino women in our community have a four-year degree, and which kind of is difficult with job prospects and wages, et cetera. Um, so Stop the Scars was seeded by a $20 million gift from the Spiegel Family Foundation and Evan Spiegel, the founder of Snap. And with that, for the next decade, we're able to guarantee that every single student who graduates from our largest district, Stockton Unified, will get a four-year scholarship to go to a four-year school, a two-year scholarship to go to community college, or even money to pay for tools and training if they go to trade school, with the message being, we don't care what you do. But you have to, you have to, you, you, you have to do something. And we've married that with an agenda around kind of school reform and policy change. So A through G is now the graduation requirement in Stockton Unified. We're um, using some of the money that was used for district police to actually pay for college counselors for our students. Um, and we're advocating right now with the state legislature and the governor's office at the next CSU that's built in the state has to be built in Stockton because Stockton is the largest metro area in the state and the second largest in this country without a four-year public institution of higher learning. Yeah, and I just want to emphasize with people, so a lot of discussion, I think, you know, Bernie Sanders gets credit for trying to lift up the idea around, you know, free higher education, et cetera, but what's happening in Stockton is they're actually expanding access to higher education for people more from the, beyond the concept to making that more of a reality. So yeah, let me just add one thing there, Steve, because I, I think, given that 90% of our students are Title I, so the $1,000 they get for a four-year school makes Cal State University tuition-free for them. So all the kids in our mm -hmm. largest school district will be, are getting tuition-free public education wow. if they choose to go to a Sac State or a CSU right. Santa Claus. So I do want to pivot. I just want to you know, encourage this. Last, there is a lot more that, do, that is happening in Stockton, and so I don't, and if another plug for the, the documentary coming out on, on, on Tuesday, the July 28th. So they go into more about what the work is there. So I really encourage you know, folks to check that out and, and, and don't try to tell me you don't have HBO because it's from my Facebook feed. I know everybody was watching Game of Thrones when it was out. So, <laughs> But so I want to hear a little bit more from you guys about like what it's like, right? I mean, I know a little bit about being a young married couple active in city politics, right? I mean, I was 28 when I was elected to the school board in San Francisco and I know it's very much a team effort, right? And then Susan had been very involved in education reform work prior to my um, running in um, <laughs> how old we are. There is a education week used to be, well, it's still online now, but it was a, a weekly education newspaper that Susan would take scissors 
and cut out articles from. She would like flag them, share them with me, right? That was part of it. She kept trying to give them to people who might run for school board, but they actually didn't. So I think she was glad that I finally ran. And when I ran, I ran on a, we call it a five-year plan for education reform. And Susan was very involved in actually drafting that. So I know it's very much a team effort. So I kind of want to hear a little bit more about your guys's backstory on that front. But first, you know, as long as I've known you guys, I actually don't know the answer to how you actually met. <laughs> oh, it's a great story. Well, we have different stories for it. So I'll tell mine. <laughs> okay. And then Mike can tell his version. Mine's probably more accurate, though. I have a better memory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Michael, I met him when I was a freshman and he was a junior. And I'd heard all this just different stories about this guy named Tubbs because everyone loved him and he was starting all these orgs even when we were in undergrad. And I was sort of like, yeah, I mean, he sounds fine, whatever. Um, and he was studying abroad. So he was in DC and then he was in South Africa. So it wasn't until they flew him back for an event that we have at Stanford or used to have called Stan Funk, where he was giving a speech, a little monologue. And I just felt really inspired by the passion with which he was delivering the speech. And so afterward, I went up to him and said, you know, something to the extent of that was great. And I'm Anna and whatever, introduced myself, worked up the courage to talk to this upperclassman. And he looks back at me and said, oh, thank you so much. You're my favorite freshman now. And then he just walked away. <laughs> but <laughs> he doesn't even remember this moment happening, Steve. So I'm not sure how many people he said that to. <laughs> so my version is um, we were in a meeting organizing a protest for Troy Davis in fall mm. of my year. And she was BSU president. I was NACP president. Um, she was a sophomore, so she hadn't been on campus for four years yet. And I had been there for four years, and we, we were just always protesting something. Um, there was just so much injustice. So Oscar Grant, death penalty, like there was Tukey Wood. There was, all, there was always a protest. We were organizing something on campus, dining hall hours, Occupy Stanford. It was just always tubs, meeting, protest. Um, so we're, I'm just trying to get through the agenda. We're going to do this, we're going to do this, who's doing that, who's doing that. And then Anna just stopped the meeting, and she's like, you're missing the point. And I was like, what? Like, we're, just, we're doing a protest. And then she spoke just so eloquently and from the heart. And she even started like crying about just the injustice of it all. How it wasn't just another protest, but mm -hmm. literally a human being was going to be executed for a crime we knew he didn't commit. If we didn't honor just the individuality of that injustice, that we wouldn't be doing like, a great service. I remember hearing that. I was like, oh my gosh, to feel that deeply and be that passionate and be that empathetic just really resonated with me. So I remember looking at Cameron Henry, my best friend, and saying, I'm going to marry her. <laughs> he thought I was just joking, but I was very, very serious. Apparently you were. <laughs> now, it makes me think, well, not to, con I guess maybe to continue the full step. I didn't even know until preparing for this podcast, Anna, that you were president of Stanford BSU, yeah. which I was president of Stanford BSU back in the day. And then this was how like, we talk about nerdy. So when Susan and I first started getting together, I had written a history of Stanford BSU called Justice and Hope. So okay. I gave her that copy of that publication. I didn't know that you were the one who wrote it. <laughs> yes, I spent like you know, all the presidents have to read that. It's part that, of the that is so funny. I poured my blood, sweat, and tears into that thing. I'm so glad wow. people look at it. <laughs> but so that was my you know courtship offering to Susan was giving her that, and then she gave me a paper she had written on education reform. Right, oh. it was uh, based on Paulo Freire. Right, liberatory education lessons in Aikido and surfing. 
my honors thesis was rooted in the work of Paulo. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called an intervention we created in Stockton to kind of use his pedagogy to inspire average students, quote-unquote average students, to be problem solvers in terms of their community. So. And then I taught Paulo Freire when I started teaching students in Stockton. I wonder if he would have ever imagined that his work would have led to, like, these different, you know, marriages and relationships <laughs> and whatnot. So... So maybe just to walk us through, like, what was, like, what was your, each of you, your day yesterday? Like, how do you, what do you actually do? Like, what's a, what's a mayor and a first partner's day-to-day look like? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely transformed since Michael Malachi was born. Because <laughs> <laughs> our day kind of starts at, like, 2 a.m. when he has yeah. his first stream feed. And he's like, I'm ready to wake up. And we're like, no, you're not. Let's go back to bed. Um, so I kind of take that shift. And then... Mike wakes up with him at five in the morning and they have their dad and son time until about seven-ish. Mm. And recently we've been taking him to his swim lessons. That That's an honorable mention. And then we come back. But that's when the work really starts. And with COVID-19, we've just kind of been um, alternating who's spending time with Malachi um, so that I can get my writing done for, I have to finish my dissertation. So that's another project. And then once I do my two hours of writing, then Mike, um, then I take Michael Malachi back and we have our day together and Mike gets to to do his part. Yeah, so basically I'm just on Zoom and on the phone Uh, (laughs) most of the day. Um, And if I have the baby, I try. He's been on Zoom and he's been on interviews because the mom has to work and dad has to work. And it means someone to help us with childcare like a week before COVID hit. But when COVID hit, we're just like, you know what? We're gonna make it work. So I think to all the working parents, two parents working, single parents, and to the primary caregivers who all your work is caregiving, shouts to you having kids and raising kids. It's, it's, it's hard. But so in addition to that, um, usually I start the day with with him around 5.30, and then usually there's some like East Coast mail I read real quick or like an article to him um, from the New York Times. <laughs> and then usually an interview or a conversation like this um, in the morning, some sort of conference call with my staff, a bunch of emails, and then repeat. And the evenings, we started all over again with, you know, getting everybody ready for bed and cooking dinner and doing our exercise when we can. So it's a lot of back-to-back, but mm-hmm. nothing has, has kind of challenged our teamwork more than having a child. And I think it's been, it's been amazing. We've really risen to that occasion and I always really, I mean, I think motherhood, if I haven't, if I'm a broken record, it's so be it. Motherhood is just such a powerful and amazing role and privilege. Um, and I always wanted to be able to have that time with my kids while still being able to do my work. And so my 10 hours a week that I need to do my work, um, Michael's been able to cover that. And then I can really sit here and watch my child grow and interact and participate in that development. So it's worked out perfectly for us. And for the record, I would also say, Steve, at about 10, 30, 11, I, then I do edits for the book. <laughs> <laughs> he claims to, but no one's here to watch that. I'm pretty sure he's yeah. just watching TV. All right. Well, I know you guys are super busy, and I really want to thank you for the, taking the time out to do this. And just to you know, reflect back, you, know, you get to know people and you interact with them informally, but I want to say kind of formally for the record, you know, thinking about where we're at at this moment in history, right? So Susan and I have been reflecting back. It was 13 years ago Obama ran, 12 years ago Obama got elected, and I like to joke that, which was not a joke, I'm glad I was old enough to be part of helping elect the first black president, but young enough to sum up those lessons and think about what's next. 
And so as we think about the next 10 years and where we're going, one of the things that we're most both proud of and feel has been our, that we've been feel the greatest sense of accomplishment and satisfaction from has been connecting with young leaders and rising leaders who are going on to do significant things. And so this concept of passing the baton is really not just a theoretical idea, but a very real one. And I just really am so, you know, super proud of what both of you are doing and grateful for the leadership that you're providing. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us. Well, wait, Steve, let us thank you. I think for me personally, politically, you were the first kind of political mentor um, I, I had and remained that and through the good and the bad. Um, and always a text away, and I know I also appreciate, I know, and not only can speak for herself, but I would say I appreciate the way you also have an independent relationship with her and, and support her and, and show her shoot for her as well. So I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for being just a phenomenal mentor and role model. Yeah, I just want to echo that. I think even a concrete example is when Mike goes to you for advice on something, you always remind him, okay, well, what is Anna think about that? And you <laughs> in the conversation, and I appreciate that. And I think Yours and Susan's partnership is just a, an example for us to follow, and we're really inspired by it. And even the way you put each other first, no matter what's happening or commitments that you have, um, when it comes to each other, you will drop anything to make sure you're there for each other. And it's something that we constantly remind each other of as well. So, so thank you, and thank you to Susan for being that example for us. Thank you, Susan. Love you. All right. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. If you haven't yet joined our email list, you can sign up at democracyincolor.com. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. Don't forget to catch the HBO documentary, Stockton on My Mind, debuting on Tuesday, July 28th. Both of our guests from today are active on social media. You can follow them there. Anna's Twitter handle is at Anna's T, A-N-N-A-S underscore T-E-A underscore. And Michael is at Michael D. Tubbs. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from April Elkier, recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. We opened with clips from John Lewis and C.T. Vivian, and I want to close with a clip from Reverend Joseph Lowry, President Obama had asked Reverend Lowry to deliver the benediction at his inauguration in 2009. And I'll leave, I'll leave you with an excerpt from that speech. Until next time, keep the faith. And in the joy of a new beginning, we ask you to help us work for that day when black will not be asked to get back, when brown can stick around, when yellow will be mellow, when the red man can get ahead, man, and when white will embrace what is right, let all those who do justice and love mercy say amen. 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 Say amen, amen. and amen. amen.